note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We good? Yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group. Hey, how's it going? Good. You know, I bet people would be so jealous to hear that you are currently traveling. <laughs> yes, I am. I recently traveled with my daughter to the U.S. where she'll be attending high school for a year. So it's uh, pretty exciting at the moment for her. And most importantly, you got to fly <laughs> to go there. Travel, man, I, I really miss travel. True, true. I, I think a lot of people are feeling that way. And I think both of us used to travel a lot more back in the day, right, Brian? Yeah, and you know who else also loves to travel, Ethan? I do not know. George. Uh, talk about strange segues. <laughs> I'd rather talk about the life of George, the fun little smartphone game that hit mobile phone stores back in 2011, along with cool guy, snappy dresser, 2D George and his desire to get you to build things quickly with flat pieces of Lego bricks. Okay, let's do this. Before there was Life of George, or, or even a George, or even a puzzle game, there was an Israeli tech company on the hunt for a creative partner. Formed in 2007, IQ is a leading tech company in Israel that specializes in creating custom vision recognition solutions for toys and games. Ronan Horovitz co-founded the company after working in the defense industry. The story goes that one day his wife asked him why he was using his expertise for the defense industry instead of trying to create something for the greater good. So he got this idea to use the tech to enhance play. And in 2009, he made a goal for himself to introduce his vision tech to the top 10 toy companies in the world. That's right. So, so he's out there making the rounds, talking to all the big toy companies, and manages to grab a meeting with the Lego Group at their offices in Connecticut. The people there were so taken with the tech, they directed Ronan to Paul Smith Meyer, who was the head of the Lego Group's new business group at the time. His job was to bring new ideas to the market. So Ronan emails Paul in November 2009, and the two end up meeting in Boston in March 2010. He was going to introduce me to this new technology he had for capturing 3D objects. And he had uh, developed something where he could capture 3D Lego bricks. Watching the, the demo he had was kind of awkward for me. It was a deja vu back to KidPad 10 years earlier. Because what he showed was a web camera attached to a computer which could recognize bricks. 
And what I knew was that playing in front of a computer is not a good play experience. Kids are not able to separate like when to look at the screen or when to look at the physical bricks. But I thought it was really cool what they could do. So I asked him at that moment, are you able to use this technology on an iPhone, which I had just gotten? And he was like, I don't know. So that was really the task from our first meeting in Boston, was for him to go back to Israel and experiment with how to capture Lego bricks on an iPhone. Now, we've talked about the KidPad before on this podcast. It's the amazing bit of tech that would have had players use Duplo toys and a plastic pad to interact with a computer game, but it never came to market. Yes, that's right. It ended with a jar full of pig's feet and a studio shutting down. That is a story for another time. One you, dear listeners, should check out in the second episode of this podcast about the Lego group's pursuit of fluid play. But back to Paul and Ronan. So when I gave him the challenge in March of uh, 2010 to to see if he can actually capture Lego bricks on the iPhone, he uh, replies a little bit later, having returned to Israel, and says, it will take me $20,000 and three months. So uh, before the summer holiday, he returns to uh, Billen and introduces me to his first prototype. And it's kind of funny because he has spray-painted a makeup stand in purple and glued a 32 by 32 Lego plate onto it, also sprayed in purple. And the iPhone he gives me has only one app installed, and it's an app that can do one thing. So basically you build a few bricks together in 2D, so it's one by bricks, and you attach them to this purple plate, and then you raise your iPhone, and as soon as the camera looked at it, it said, bling, and the object most of the times <laughs> would appear on the screen. And when I heard that bling, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Imagine what you can now do. And I think I was probably one of the few people who started then imagining that this could actually be the future of a new way of playing with Lego bricks. Excited about this new concept, Paul quickly realizes that 2D capture is the best approach for a simple pick-up-and-play experience. It's actually okay that we start with capturing basic colors in 2D because that's also how computer games started. It's like more pixel experience. And it's also easier to create things and quicker to create things if it's more stacking than thinking 3D. The meeting ended with Ronan heading back to Israel, optimistic that his company's technology could power a new Lego brick experience. Paul, for his part, went on his summer holiday, but he couldn't stop thinking about the potential of the technology. He was so captivated by the tech, he ended up whipping up a concept for a game he called Brickit, which basically had players building geometric shapes with flat Lego elements on a pad, and then scanning it to get a score based on accuracy and speed. Once he got back from his break, he reached out to Ronan. I sent him an email with all my notes written probably in notes uh, on the iPhone. And uh, immediately him and Ron and, and the two other guys in his team, they started working on this. They thought it was really cool. And they were set to deliver a prototype of the game in the fall. So after a few months uh, back and forth, they returned again with actually a prototype of the game. So we started playing this and everything we had was then at the time abstract shapes. So it wasn't actually figures, it was more like geometric shapes, cool patterns. And I thought that was really cool. So the Brickit game experience was pretty simple. You had the physical Lego bricks, 
in different colors and one by two, one by three, one by four. And you got different shapes on the screen when you started the game. And then you had to build that shape and the pattern in form and color. And there was a timer. And the timer went tick, 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 which really created this stress experience, like a game show. And uh, you had to build and complete the model before the time ran out and place it on a mat, which was this 2D printed mat on the table, and then lift your phone, and the phone would automatically scan the model, and it would say, pling, and when the pling came, you got a score. So that score was based on, was the bricks you put together accurate, and the time you spent. Work on the game proceeded through the winter, with Paul bringing in the rest of the new business group team, including Cynthia Baudin and Mikkel Holm, as well as starting work with an in-house agency. We were trying to figure out, how do we communicate this? What kind of box is it? We were looking a lot about like retro gaming and going back to the nostalgia of like the 8-bit gaming. So that was kind of the route we were taking and saying, the first game experience will define the future of this type of play. And we presented then our strategy for launching this in March of 2011 to our investment board, which was Mats Nipper, Per Euler, and Lisbeth Walter-Pallesen. And at the time, we had also been thinking of the go-to-market strategy, saying the place we should really be with this experience is in the Apple Store, because this experience really showcases the Apple technology in a good way and the Lego bricks possibilities of creativity. So we set ourselves a challenge of actually bringing this product to market and uh, into the Apple stores from March to September. Not only did the investment board like the idea for Brickett, they also thought it could be a game that could crack a problem the company had been struggling with, defining the role of virtual experiences in a company so focused on the physical. So the reaction from the investment board at the time was that, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Even though it's uh, a two-dimensional brick building, it really showcases a way of uh, uh, focusing creativity both physically and in the screen. And that was really our vision to say, we need to find a new play pattern that can be repeated over and over and over again in future experiences. And that was really to define what is the role of building physical Lego bricks and what is the role of the virtual experience. So once those bricks are captured, what do you do? And how does the virtual experience inspire or challenge you to build again? Because we wanted this continuous flow of build uh, and then to play and then to go back to be inspired to build more. And we thought that that would kind of, if we, if we crack that code, this could be a real kind of, we could develop products for the next 10 years. After getting the thumbs up from the investment board, the next step for the team was getting it in front of Apple. The team knew they needed to get the iPhone creator on board because they felt the experience was a great way to highlight the phone's own technology alongside the fun and creativity of Lego brick building. Eventually, Holm found a contact through LinkedIn who headed up sales at Apple in Europe and they managed to set up a meeting. Unfortunately, things didn't go exactly as expected. And we played the game, they got to play the game, and they thought, this is really cool. This is actually, this is the type of product we are looking for because it's innovative, it's creative, and it really showcases our product in a good way. They gave us one challenge, though, at the end of the meeting. They said, 
this bricket is very abstract. It's very cool, but what if it had a story around it? What if it was more emotional, something that people could attach to? And that, you know, stuck in the head, sitting on the plane back home, like, hmm, yeah, what can we do? Because we were so focused on, like, you know, the purism of the Lego experience. It was about bricks and shapes and no story, just very clean. While Paul and his team were flying their way over to London for a sit-down with Apple and ultimately that bit of creative pushback, Cynthia Baudin was worrying over Brickett. She had been assigned to the project as a designer, and while she liked the concept, she felt the design itself was, well, a little bit cold. I got to think uh, that the best way to actually bring uh, emotions uh, to the concept was to build a character, to create a character. So I just got to play around with bricks and try to use as little amount of bricks as possible, but still have something that looks like a human. So after like trying different iterations, then I came around with George, who was just a nameless uh, figure, but then when I got him and I was happy with him, I just showed him to my colleague, Mikkel, and he directly said, oh, George. So that's how George was born. That decision to give Brickett a personality, to take a pile of bricks and flat grid and turn it into the tow-headed, brick-eyed George, didn't just give the game personality and solve Apple's challenge even before the team visiting London returned to Denmark. It also led to a nickname for Cynthia, Mother of George. <laughs> yes, that's because I created George. But George wasn't always going to be a flat, tie-wearing businessman. Cynthia said she also played around with other designs like little aliens or monsters. But once she settled on a human for the design, her choices for George's look was slightly constrained by the limitations of the brick set that would ship with the game. She also decided to give him a bit of an everyman life. George wants you to build, scan, score! I basically found the concept of having uh, George being a character with a very busy and real life. And uh, I went on developing uh, the rest of the models, uh, all the models that you see when you're playing the game. I went on developing with the other uh, designers the different levels in the game. So I'm um, creating a story, a little story, some little chapters of what was happening to George, really. And um, the reason why there were all those models inside was because George was traveling the world, and he would just take photos of all the things that he was seeing, but also mundane, everyday things, and things that he would see uh, during his, uh, his travels. The idea was um, to have this really, really simple game with this like simple mechanic where um, the smartphone is the game master, and you're playing like against the clock. You need to build as fast as possible the little model that you see um, on uh, the photo album. And then, you know, hold your phone and then it recognizes the model. Is it correct or not? And uh, how long time did it take you to build that model? So that was sort of like the premise. But then I was thinking, okay, what kind of models do we build and why? So then we needed to create those different uh, chapters. And George, it was about 
yeah, it was about his life. And he also had, uh, you know, a girlfriend and uh, like different friends um, around him. And then so we went on and on on just like uh, creating different chapters and different stories. And some of the stories were a little crazy, but like we didn't really care on how crazy it was. But I went in really deep in uh, creating his life and all the things yeah, behind the scenes that we've never really talked about. We never really talked about openly, you know, uh, what is his job? So his job is actually um, computer engineer, and then he's a little shy on the uh, introverted side, and um, all the things, in fact, that came after. To bring a bit more personality to George and his hobbies, the team created a Facebook page under the name I Love Numbers, because, according to Paul, George is a bit of a nerd. Soon Cynthia and the rest of the small team found themselves managing George's Facebook page and even responding to the emails he received on his personal email account. Yes, yes, they were. Like so many people, I was, yeah, in that way, I was really surprised that uh, people wanted to know more about George. They wanted to know his life and they were really playing along uh, that game. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I love. He even got an Instagram uh, page later on Instagram account. That, like, we really put an emphasis on uh, George himself and what he was up to, um, created some uh, competitions and, like, really, like, a way to to engage people as um, a community around um, their love for George. And I even got, I remember I got people telling me, uh, you know, when I'm having a hard day, I just think of George and play with the game and he puts a, a smile on my face. And for me as a designer, it's the biggest, biggest compliments that you can hear. Paul said all of this backstory and personality were sort of created on the fly. So the fun thing with how George and his whole universe came about was really that it started with George, it started with a character, and the naivety of these 2D characters. And we didn't sit down and write the whole story Bible of his whole background. We just started playing around with the story. And it became kind of a live narrative that evolved as we went and we met new people. We started working with Hello Monday, which was the communication team that developed the visual universe. And it just grew. We launched a Facebook page with George on it. And so what do you fill the Facebook page with? It's really like your life, the things that happen. So after our normal day job was over, Mikkel and me would get online again and start pondering, like, what should George post today? <laughs> What's been up to? And uh, sometimes it was like us having filmed at the factory. Other times it was development. But everything was secret. You know, we started very early before launch. And this was his secret project. It was like, Life for George was his invention. So if I had had a people review, then I had had funny commentaries back to me. So I used some of that also baked into the narrative. Like, you are too creative, George. The Facebook page launched in May 2011, a bit before the life of George did. So when the game hit in September 2011, some people were sort of already aware of George. Paul said he was on a flight to Helsinki when the game went live. And when I landed and turned my phone back on and uh, checked... Googled Life for George, there was a lot of articles because we had an embargo 
for the PR. And suddenly it was a lot of news about Life for George, this new experience, showing the video and everything. So it was really exciting. So one of the big features in Life for George is really like each level was a destination. So uh, it was like his travel postcards from around the world or things, places he went or even like from his dreams. So we continued to launch new postcards. So for Christmas, it was the Christmas level. Uh, we also added the new multiplayer features and we also had a really cool feature where people could build their own models and capture them and turn them into game objects. So our, our plan for this was really to, we wanted to make Life for George a creative destination where people could just game in his universe and there was amazing amount of models that people created with the same 144 bricks that were yellow, blue, green, red, black and white. It was, uh, was amazing to see the creativity. I think almost every superhero was created by someone. If you look at the set itself, by, by being so basic, it's probably one of the best showcases of how much creativity a few bricks can lead to. Empowered by the reaction to Life of George, the team wanted to take the experience, and in particular the technology, and expand it into different game genres. Initially, that meant creating expansions for Life of George itself. The first was a sort of Japanese game show for the app where players had to spin a wheel on their phone to get new challenges. But there were a number of other ideas the team was working on. One was like an animation studio where you would do basically a stop-motion animation. And the great thing with that was the way you could capture 2D meant that by just moving one brick, you were always in the grid. So you were always within the Lego system grid uh, with your creation. So you could just move things around. And then we had like uh, paint paths. It was a really creative way of animating. And we had a pinball machine game where you built pinball uh, machines in 2D and turned them into 3D. Um, so we had a lot of different fun gameplay. To really dig into the potential concepts and explore new opportunities with the technology, the LEGO Group decided to partner up with developer Funcom. Founded in 1993 in Oslo, Norway, Funcom is perhaps best known for its work on two massively multiplayer online games, The Secret World and Age of Conan. But the company also had a studio it opened in 2009 in Canada that did work on mid-core and mobile games. It was working with the LEGO Group already on LEGO minifigures online, and Matthew Zorn, the executive producer at Funcom Canada, said it decided to reach out to the LEGO Group's future labs to discuss other potential projects. The timing couldn't have been better. Life of George had recently been released, and the LEGO Group asked Funcom to come up with some concepts based around the technology and ideas of Life of George. I went and met with the team. This is Matthew Zorn speaking. I think around 2012 was my first meeting, um, actually in Billund, uh, where I went and met with the Future Lab team, and we went over, we put a pitch together, we went over and presented it, and and from there it was, it just kicked everything off. Um, I think they really liked our approach, you know, the, the way that we wanted to do things and, and just our creative kind of approach that meshed with the brand very well. We proposed just a bunch of different games around this idea where you could scan elements and then bring them into the, the mobile devices. 
I mean, the Life of George was the, the perfect foray into using, you know, the mobile devices. And that was opening up a lot of new opportunities, you know, with the camera and with all of these things. And everybody had all of these devices now. So it was a really good opportunity to leverage the brand that from Life of George and see what we could do more with that. Matthew said the meeting lasted two or three days and ended with the Funcom Group and Lego Future Lab coming up with three solid ideas. One was for a game that would have players creating flat fish designs, which could be scanned and then brought to life in a fish tank on your phone. Another was called Lego Elements and was essentially Minecraft designed for a tablet, but with the addition of the ability to scan flat buildings and extrude them into the 3D world of the game on your device. The third was a town planner that melded the idea of constructing building facades to scan into a virtual city with the planning elements of a game like SimCity. Matthew said the team prioritized the three projects and then returned to Montreal to start working on fleshing them out. I remember that we got shipped, what was it, six massive boxes of Lego bricks of all the different kinds because they wanted that immersion so that we could really get into that creative thinking so that we could approach all of these different methods. We also took the... Um, just breaking out the project. As typical like, game development, we figured out what's the core game loop, um, how are we going to engage users, how are we going to keep them involved, what are those different meta mechanics, and just flushing out the very high-level game design based on those ideas that we had come up with, and then put that against our production timelines, production plan, all that stuff, and then basically started that and kicked that into full production which at that point then we had people from Lego, the team, the Future Lab team, just coming and spending a lot of time with us. And then we'd do a lot of back and forth. They'd spend some time with us. We'd spend some time in Billund. As the project began to take form, the team was sure all three would become games. Fish Tank, though, was the top priority because everyone on the team thought it was such a strong idea. The team spent months on research and development trying to work through some of the issues created by scanning a physical 2D model and exporting it into a digital 3D environment. The team was also finding great success with their work on elements, achieving the sort of technical outcome that even surprised the higher-ups at the LEGO Group, Matthew said. But one by one, the project started to fall through, starting with Fish Tank. Like, literally, this was the word, you know? It was like, ah, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere. No one wants to play with fish. Fish are boring. I got a lot of opposition from the rest of the Future Lab team that, uh, you know, fish are not cool. This is Paul Smith Meyer speaking. You know, it's not enough cool. So we actually added like a lot of coolness to it. But, uh, you know, the, the, it was so much pushback on doing fish. In an attempt to save the game, Paul worked on adding other elements to fish tank, like a crab, which didn't seem to have much impact on the naysayers. Next came the death of Town Planner and Elements. Matthew said it all happened seemingly out of the blue. So I got a phone call uh, because we were like, it was very strange. Um, I remember all of a sudden, no one was talking to us. And everything was great. Everybody was there. I, I mean, literally, like we're probably talking the week before everybody were doing these brainstorming, we're going to do all this stuff. And then we're reaching out and we're like, where did everybody go? You know, like why... Why is no one returning our calls? Why is no one reaching back out on our emails? And I remember we got an email saying, can we set up a call? And I was like, that doesn't sound good, right? Like not, hey, sorry, we've been here. It's like, can we set up a call? 
So it was myself, it was my technical director, the studio manager at the time. I think there was, yeah, maybe three or four of us. And we got on a call uh, with one person and he took over and then he called us and said, look, you know, as you know, Future Lab is more of an R&D team that looks at opportunities to where we can extend the brand more so into the future kind of play cycles for the brand. And due to this, we will no longer be continuing our relationship with you. And all of the work from this point on needs to be handed over to Lego, which will be continued with TT Games and Warner. And we're like, what? Like just, yeah, like dropped the hammer. And we were just absolutely beside ourselves. But, you know, I understand it's business at the end of the day, but it was definitely, it, it was taken very hard. And I think it was by everybody that was really invested into this, just really felt like we just had the rug pulled out from under us. I think it was a combination of things. You know, Funcom at the time, they had gone through a bit of a, a tough patch with their MMO that they had launched, The Secret World. And they shut down, we had about 200 people, and they basically shut down the Montreal MMO and moved everybody to, or not everybody, who was left to North Carolina and back to Oslo. We were what was left. So the mid-core social mobile division was what was left. And we became Funcom Games Canada after that. And so as long as we were bringing in projects and stuff, we didn't really have support, in all honesty, from, from head office. Because I don't think the board wanted to support the, the studio because it was really we we're just keeping it open at that point because we had projects and we were successful. But... Once we started to lose the Lego brand projects, then that became a reason for them not to support us. So we never got biz dev support. We never got support from trying to perpetuate it. It was just, you know, they wouldn't let us hire people. They wouldn't let us really do anything. And it just became this attrition scenario where that just compounded everything else. And yeah, ultimately, they just didn't want to support it and they sold it. While Funcom worked on expanding the ideas behind the technology that drove Life of George, the LEGO Group's Future Lab continued their support of that app, essentially just maintaining it. And when the work Funcom was doing transferred over to TT Games, most of the Future Lab folks began working with them on the next big project using the technology, Fusion. <laughs> LEGO Fusion, which released in 2014, seems to blend elements of two of Funcom's early prototypes to deliver an experience that has players building out facades that can be imported into a Lego city on a tablet. But the birth of Fusion brought with it the death of George. Life of George uh, ended around when we launched Fusion. This is Paul Smith-Meyer speaking. So it faded out. There was no one to carry the legacy of George forward. It was like, that was a fun experiment. And there was this notion that uh, also, I think misunderstood at the time that we launched things to learn. And what we had had as a mantra in new business group was not, we don't launch to learn, but we launch and then we learn and then we iterate and we grow. So since this whole technology had become part of the pool of all these other games, there wasn't really anyone who own the vision of what capture technology should really be used for. And it was more like, okay, let's launch cool stuff and see what happens. 
Yeah, I think uh, George was forgotten. And uh, if you go into his uh, Facebook page, he's kind of telling the last image there. It's like, you know, uh, it's like George uh, saying goodbye. He's going on a long holiday. He doesn't know when he's going to come back. And that was it. I think with that post, it was just like, George is over. And uh, I don't think there was a lot of lessons learned, uh, unfortunately. It was more focused on launching something cool. But it was also not really TT Games's they weren't passionate about this. They did it because of uh, more relationship to Lego and then really that they thought that this was the future of Lego play. Unfortunately, also the team at the time looked at this more as a learning experience. Like we launched Fusion, we see what happens, we collect some learnings and then that also faded away. So I think like it, there's time to reintroduce uh, what started with George again, because it was still an amazing experience. Another Funcom project that saw new life, but not a published game, was Fish Tank. It was resurrected and redesigned to become a key interactive exhibit at the Lego House in Billund, Denmark. That's something that makes Matthew proud. That's amazing. I, I love to hear that because, I mean, honestly, I would love to do that game again. I, I think that, you know, now with the technology, pfft, we could do some crazy stuff that, uh, I mean, because even with that, just going back to the engineering, like there was a lot of things that we needed to develop because even though it was early in, you know, mobile device lifespan, it was also early for Unity. Unity, we had to actually create our own engine to put bone structures against these characters because there was nothing. The only thing that came, I think it was called, I want to say it was called Mechanim, which was this Unity-based humanoid-type bone structure that you could apply dynamically to characters. So we actually had to create different types of, of bone structures that we would dynamically apply based on the choice that you would pick. So is it a fish? Is it like an eel? Or is it, you know, whatever these things are? And then we animated these different sequences, and then those would get dynamically applied to the 3D extrusion that you scanned. And that took us a long time. Like, I remember when we first started, the, the engineers, of course, you know, they say like anything else, like, oh, can't be done. You know, oh, no, can't be done. But we did it. Life of George wasn't just a fun-loving, globe-trotting everyman who urged people to play with small piles of bricks. It was also a pivotal moment in the world of LEGO games, in particular, the LEGO group's exploration of fluidly moving between the physical and digital in play, Cynthia said. I think that um, it was really a big step uh, for us. It was, um, yeah, in a way, it was the start of a new direction. And I was really not expecting, um, yeah, that it would have such an impact because it was such a small project with very few people involved. That's what, in a way, makes it so charming uh, because then you can really have a big impact on the design of everything. It's it's you uh, because you're the the only person designing it. So yeah, I was I was very surprised to see that he had uh, such an impact uh, on the the, the project that that followed that and this wish to make uh, more experiences uh, for kids that were just, you know, even more fun uh, than George for them. I think that was like the first time we were using this um, brick recognition technology. So this thing was just very new and 
On the other hand, yeah, the whole style of it, like the use of the bricks and this pixelated style that was, everything was just, yeah, so new. So I think that, um, yeah, I think that's what uh, makes it made it so important uh, for people. Zern, whose team at Funcom pushed to extend the life of George technology, still sees the struggle to marry the worlds of the physical and digital. You know, I think there is this huge disconnect between physical and virtual world. And I mean, this was really the key where a lot of the Lego Future Labs really wanted to make this bridge. And this is what I think really was the key to all of this stuff that, that I see even today only starting where they're starting to integrate physical products with digital goods. We had a team of visionaries that really wanted to change things. And the Lego Future Labs team wanted to change things, you know, change the way people approach things. And, and it was such this great marriage of ideas. Paul, who had that first meeting in 2009 that so inspired him, thinks that in some ways, the biggest lesson to glean from Life of George has nothing to do with the technology that empowered it. For me, it's kind of where I felt that we have forgotten about how creative you can be with a few bricks. Always celebrating, you know, a lot of bricks, a lot of complex model building, but forgetting that, you know, when you're sitting at home and uh, with a few bricks or your own bricks, like, how do we start triggering you to look at those bricks in new ways? And we need to start simple. And it's kind of back, back to Creator in 2001 when we started looking at that, like kind of going back to basics of really showcasing that how awesome basic bricks can be. And that was for me what was genius about Life for George is that when you look at those bricks in a pile, you see nothing. There's nothing there. But as you said, once you start building with it and all these things come to life and there's like the Hawaii level with the hula girl and the surfboard and and the, the little drink and you, you get all these levels and uh, and you go like, are these from the same bricks? And I think that it surprised ourselves like, you know, wow, can you actually make this? And it, it looks cool. And I think that's what is important in the Lego group to always go back and remind themselves about why are we here? It's really to, to inspire people to create with Lego bricks. That is the main job. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Brian Crescente and Ethan Vincent. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Research and writing by Brian Crescente. Art direction by Nanan Lee. Graphics and animations by Mango Lindinger and Andreas Holzinger. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Disclaimer voice is Ben Ungren. Openings child voice is Milo Vincent. Music by Peter Primer, founder of music.com, and excerpts from the game Lego Life of George. We'd like to thank our participants, Cynthia Boda, Paul Smithmeyer, and Matthew Zorn. We'd also like to thank the entire Lego Games team. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. Bits and Bricks.